0: Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was A Woman. My name is Jamila Risby, and today my co-host Astrid Edwards and I are in conversation with Australian fantasy author Maria Lewis. Maria is an author of many best-selling books. Her debut novel was Who's Afraid, published in 2016, followed by its sequel, Who's Afraid 2, in 2017, which was nominated for Best Horror Novel at the Aurelius Awards. Who's Afraid is currently being developed for television. Fantasy, as the audience would know, is not my bag. But I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Maria Lewis, who is a multi talented writer and wonderful conversationalist. Maria, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. We are so thrilled to have you with us today. I love the show and I love all of the women
1: that you've had on it so far. It's so nice that there's a podcast out there that specifically like hypes up the girls in the Australian business. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it.
0: Well, we are delighted to be hyping you up today. The Rose Daughter is your seventh book in a sort of series where each novel focuses on a different female monster as the lead character. For those who are not familiar with your work yet, emphasis on the yet, wait till the interview for those people, can you give us a bit of a spiel? Yeah, so basically...
1: Each book in this series it's called the Supernatural Sisters series. It's designed to be an entry point because I didn't want to have to exclude anybody at any point in the story. And that sort of comes from my comic book background and love of that as a medium, right? Because Stan Lee, who's kind of like the godfather of Marvel comics, he had this saying, you have to think of every comic book as somebody's first comic book. And I try and think of books that way too. I know that doesn't really make sense in sort of the modern spectrum of publishing, but even something like Gillian Flynn's series, right? Like Gone Girl, Sharp Objects, Dark Places, none of those books are specifically related to each other, but they all carry on like similar themes and tones and Supernatural Sisters series. Each book focuses on a different woman and a different type of woman And sort of examines different Feminist themes through the vessel of a different Type of monster, even though The world is the same, and if You have read all the books, there are characters That you'll recognise, there are World devices and mechanisms that Will be familiar to you, but it's not Essentially necessary, it's it's sort of think of it Like X-Men, right? Like you have the world Of X-Men and everybody knows, oh there's a team And this guy's got claws and this dude's blue And this chick can like control the weather and that's nice But you have the world of X-Men But then you also have Wolverine has his own series and storm has her own series and rogue has her own series and so on and so forth. And that's kind of how I think of it. There are certainly diehards who've been there from the beginning, God bless. And then there are people that are coming in at, you know, the wailing woman, for instance, which is my fifth book, or which you caught a death, which was my fourth and Rose daughter in particular, I don't know what it is about that book necessarily. It's got a beautiful cover. So maybe that's like doing the lure, like the Adam and the Eve apple of it all. (laughs) And I'm the serpent or something, not to get a weirdly biblical, but it seems like that book has seen, well, at least in my experience, I've noticed a lot of new readers and that is such a surprising and rewarding thing. After nearly 10 years in the game, I'm like, welcome, join us, come over to our weird circle of like feminist universal
2: movie monsters. You know, want to hear about banshees? I got a book for you, which is ghosts. What do you need kids? You have just said so many things that I love. You said, Stanley, Marvel, Shared Universe, X-Men, Wolverine, Storm. Jam doesn't let me normally talk about these things. So firstly, personal thanks. Jam is actually now laughing at us both on Zoom, but I am very, very excited to talk to another person who deeply loves fantasy and comics and graphic novels and everything that the Shared Universes can offer many people listening to Anonymous was a woman are not like you and I, Maria. So I want to ask a broad question for those who haven't yet fallen in love with anything that you have referred to and also your books. You are a journalist, a screenwriter, you have done so many things. What draws you to the fantastical and these genres?
1: I think what initially drew me to Fantasy broadly, whether that was television or film or books or comic books or even newspaper serials or whatever, even fantasy and music like musicals, like fantastical storytelling of Andrew Lloyd Webber or whatever. But I think what initially drew me to it was that was the place that I could very clearly identify characters that I was not seeing elsewhere. And I don't just mean women, but I mean women of colour and I mean women of different ages and abilities and women who got to be the leads of their own story and villains as well. Like I've always been such a sucker for like a great female villain and a great nuanced female villain. Like Faith from Buffy was always my favourite character because I thought she was just a lot more interesting than the sort of like conventional blonde California girl. Faith was from the wrong side of the tracks. And she had this interesting narrative of like, she turns villainous and then turns back and it just felt more organic and realistic. Right. But I remember the first time I'd moved over to Australia and didn't have many friends. There are the other friends I had had also just moved over from New Zealand to me to get like picked on. Cause we had like weird accents and we were just different from like the surfy kids and stuff on the Gold Coast. And my granddad would pick me up after school and take me to my local library which uh, sounds so weird to say like (laughs) that a Gold Coast library had an amazing comic book section because the Gold Coast not famously known for being super supportive of geek culture back then. It's, I think it's a lot different now, but especially back then we didn't have a comic book shop. So how does this library have an amazing comic book section, but whatever, they had this great graphic novel section. So my granddad would pick me up. He'd dink me on his bike to the local library and he'd just like, you know, fuck off to go read the papers or whatever and in the crossover between the fantasy section the young adult section the kid section there was a graphic novel section and I remember going into that library and they had a birds of prey graphic novel there which was from Gail Simone and Nicola Scott at the time And on the cover was Barbara Gordon, who was in a wheelchair. And this is like post-killing joke, which is like 88, right? So you have Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl slash Oracle in a wheelchair for the majority of the 90s and 2000s. And then you had Cass Batgirl on the book next to her. It was a night alone. She's Asian. She's 16. She has the mouth sewn shut on the Batgirl suit. And then also in the Birds of Prey book, you had Huntress and you had Black Canary. So You had three women. It wasn't just one woman. And one of them was disabled. And the next book, there was a woman of colour. And I was like, what is this? Like, they looked so badass and scary and dope. And I was just immediately obsessed. And instead of having to basically troll other pieces of popular culture looking for that little morsel of representation. I think a lot of people, I mean, especially women, but any person of color, anybody who's like from a different ability background, they are looking for those morsels of representation until you find something that's somewhat representative of you. Right. And there it was just all of a sudden. And like the villains were women too. And the main characters were women and the supporting characters were women. And I was like, oh my God. And I was obsessed growing up with this movie, Mad Monster Party, which was from Rankin and Bass, which are this essential like stop motion animation house. They're the ones who did the OG, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. If you've seen the movie Elf, they're the people whose style they're imitating in the narwhal scene, right? But they had this movie, Mad Monster Party, which is where the song The Monster Mash comes from. And it was about all these monsters coming to this island, for this like prof- mad professor inventor guy to announce his heir and there was one female character in that Francesca who was like super like a blousy broad Joan Collinsy type amongst all these monsters and I remember just being like oh wow like what a dame that's amazing and I loved the monsters the monsters were like my top tier thing and then the next was Francesca and it just felt like so much of pop culture was just looking for the one thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, graphic novels opened that door, but so did the books of like Charlene Harris's Silky Stackhouse series. And even like in the crime genre, like I mentioned Gillian Flynn before, but she writes such interesting, complicated, nuanced women. you know, Rochelle Mead's work, Kristen or Alexa Martin, the romance genre, especially that survives and thrives based off women writers, women editors, women readers, women characters. And that was just always so exciting to me. I was drawn to a place where I felt included rather than excluded, if that makes
2: sense. It really does. As a very young teenager, I found my first friends in fantasy and horror and I have never really gotten over them. They are still kind of central to my character deep down somewhere, Maria. Genre has always been very good at inclusivity and at exploring the other and making the other welcome and indeed more powerful and better than the standard norm. You are obviously deeply embedded, versed in love with the fantastical across all different mediums, you know, movies, graphic novels, the written word, You do talk on gender and racial politics in fantasy. I have found a home there, but it has taken a long time and I spent an unfortunate decade reading a bunch of stuff by now dead white men and some of it was okay, but it is better these days. Can you talk to us about not just the inclusivity in the stories, but what has been changing over the last decade or so in terms of who gets to write these stories?
1: Well, I'll tell you what hasn't changed and those dead white men that you're talking about, I still have to go on tour with a bunch of those people and (laughs) they are still the same. Like any shifting tide, right? They're just like clutching onto it for dear life. You know what I mean? So that's still out there and fantasy is still, I would say, a very much male-dominated genre. But I think, and this is going to sound so callous, but it's show business, right? Not friendship business. But what has changed is that diversity has made money and publishers and studios and corporate entities, they're only going to invest in things where they think they can get a return. And I always use Fast and Furious as an example for this. No, it's not literature (laughs) per se, but for the love of God, somebody pay me to write Fast and Furious, like tie-in novels, I would do it in a heartbeat. But That series, right, because it was originally written as like a Point Break sequel, which got turned down, so then they repurposed it into an original film. I'm using like little bunny ears for those who can't see. I didn't. Anyway, Fast and Furious had so many different ethnicities represented in that first film that when it made money and all those different minorities and people came out to see versions of themselves represented in a movie that should have been a B tier financially became an A tier financially, It showed studios that representation can make money and you see it in Too Fast, Too Furious. They expand who's represented again and it keeps expanding throughout the franchise, right, to the point that it's one of the most successful film franchises, A, ever, but B, currently, and even Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, starts to design their world building based on how Fast and Furious has been successfully incorporating race and gender.
2: Every time I open my podcast feed or look at the New York Times, there is another writer or another critic extolling the virtues of the Fast and Furious franchise, which yes, could be, you know, hot women and fast cars or however they used to sell it. But it's made several billion dollars because people feel seen and they turn up with their cash. But in their central cast, they have multiple women, not one woman. They have multiple women
1: and women of different ethnicities. And like women that have aged into their forties. That's so rare to have a franchise where like Michelle Rodriguez, when she made the first one was literally like she'd come off girl fight, which was like the big head of Sundance. And she hadn't really done much else. And she has this amazing run of like girl fight, then blue crush resident evil fast and furious. And she's like barely 20 And now this cast, like, yes, the men get to be older in age. Women don't often get to do that. And you have Helen Mirren and you have Charlie Theron, and you have Michelle Rodriguez and you have Jordan, Jordana Brewster. Like, that's exciting to me. I love it so much. But in fantasy and, and the way that relates to a form that we're reading, I think a big part of the reason that it's changing is, okay, yes. People get mad about stuff and a vocal about it online. I think that's super important. But I also think that majority of publishers don't really care until it starts to affect their bottom line. And when you start to have books, a lot of self-published books, we saw this start to happen. Making a lot of money, then publishers were plucking these self-published authors who are often from diverse backgrounds or telling types of diverse stories. And now that that is important and now that that is also extremely transparent that is when we're starting to see that happen and that shift. And a big part of it is there need to be diverse faces and people from diverse backgrounds in the boardrooms, making those decisions. Because I remember when my first book, Who's Afraid was being shopped around it had been recommended to a top publisher from one of their top selling authors, right? So the manuscript had gone to that publisher and I remember getting a rejection letter that I still keep. Cause sometimes it's just like, not in a petty way, but it's just, sometimes it's just nice to know started from the bottom. Now we're here, et cetera. But in this rejection letter, they were like, we need you to turn the main character. Tommy was 22. And they're like, we need you to change her to being 16. And she was a biracial Maori woman. And they're like, we need you to make her white. And we need you to make a love triangle. Wow. Yeah. In writing Jamila, like it was so wild. And you know, this isn't that long ago. This is like 2012, maybe, or 2013. So barely a decade ago. And that's something that somebody from a top publisher in a top position committed to writing And this was, you know, the era of the Twilight novels and let's say things like Vampire Academy and even Rachel Kane, make sure rest in peace, her vampire series doing a lot of business as well, right? So they were essentially like, "Eh, we can see this stuff here, but could you just like make it conform to this ideology? And it was like, well, say you did that. I would never, but say you did do that. What makes your story different or authentic to you? Like what makes it stand out from the other sea of like 15 year old white redheads in love triangles who like also love image and hate, but are clumsy somehow, and involved in a mortal war. Like there's no point of difference and there's nothing for the people who you're writing it for in the first place. It was so weird. I don't know if that would happen now in the same way. Like I don't think people would commit it to writing, but hundred percent that ideology I think still exists. And there's still that attitude in publishing mm, a little different, just the way it's handled is different. And I guess the different companies and territories and stuff where you are in the film industry for sure. And the Australian film industry is truly super rife with it. One of the worst in terms of like systematic racism and sexism. But, you know,
0: Australia, <laughs> what can you say? Let's talk about the screen for a moment because I understand who's afraid being adapted for television. I, I don't want to ask you questions you can't answer, but did you have any rules or deal breakers perhaps when it came to adapting your characters, your world for the screen?
1: Yeah, I took a, a significant pay cut in the selling of the option that was not advised to me at the time by my representation to make sure that we had a diversity clause included. And this was 2015. I want to say, yeah, 2015. So it was before the Oscar speech about inclusion writers and before me too, and things that were much more like publicly transparent, invisible and understandable But inclusion writers and diversity writers have been in the business for a really long time. And people of different levels have been able to like utilize and weaponize them. In particular, Gina Davis's media Institute of gender studies. So dope, amazing. Absolutely love to see it, but they have a bunch of lawyers on staff and a bunch of like consultants who will help you with the wording and the language of that kind of stuff. Because, Things that I have learned in the business, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you know it, you know, that's not a Gandhi quote, but it should be because you just have to make some mistakes before you learn some stuff. And legally with language and contracts and things like that, you just learn better, know better, do better, etc. But at the time I had a inclusion writer written into the contract to make sure that we had Specifically, I think where a lot of this stuff stems from is making sure that there's diversity in the writer's room to begin with people who are crafting those stories. And that was really important to me. I didn't really understand the point of making this particular book when there's so many other things out to adapt if you didn't want to have representation in the room to begin with, you know, and that's always an uphill fight regardless, but that was my big priority. It was not recommended (laughs) at the time. I was like, fuck it. Who cares? Like, don't make it. See if I give a shit. You know, I have six other jobs, you know, it would be nice to see it one day for sure, but I'd rather see it get made right and authentic and organic and truthful to the source material than to see Emma Roberts cast as like a biracial Maori werewolf. Like I just would die in my heart of hearts. So that was something that I had been very set on from the beginning and knew that I was going to like really fight for, and I did fight for, but also to have myself attached as a writer in the initial writers room. Again, something I was advised against, but I know how this business works and Nobody's going to give you entry there was a job that I just turned down recently where they were like, we think you'd be amazing at this. Cause you're so great at world building and you know, you really understand monsters and like you're really great at story structure. And also because, and then just listed off like the four diversity boxes I ticked. And at the same time, there's like, there are so many rooms that I've had access to writers rooms and things that I know the reason I'm hired is because I'm one of five multiple diversity boxes that they're ticking. And I've taken those jobs that I have taken, their money gladly. And I have taken that leverage that opportunity has given me into the next role and the next role and the next role. And I know that if diversity and hiring hadn't been an issue, I probably wouldn't have gotten that room, but who cares? By the time you get to the end of it, it's not going to matter, right? You're still paying your bills and you'll still build up your portfolio. But it was just the way this particular TV show was sold to me that I just was like, you know what? keep your job. I'm good. Like, I think I was just really stressed out at the time and I had a bunch of other stuff going on. And I I really like the project did sound cool. The original scripts weren't great. And so I could see the potential there, but then they're like, and also you're like diverse in five to six different ways. And I'm like, and I'm also leaving. So thanks. (laughs) Like you want to just be hired because you're good. Like it really pissed me off that they were like, you are talented for this reason, this reason, this reason, but also, you know, I don't feel like men get asked those questions specifically, I don't feel like white men get asked those questions. Very often they're just given this access into a room because, you know, of their work and it comes full circle sometimes in a lot of ways. Like, Your background and your lifestyle and the things that you believe in shape who you are as a person and they inherently shape the kind of work that you make. But at the same time, I would really like, especially as I'm sort of, you know, the Supernatural series, Sister Series is wrapping up next year. The Rose Daughter is book seven. Book eight will be coming out after that. And then I'm so lucky I get to tie a bow on that series on my own terms. The same publisher I've been with through that whole process, my same editor, but At one point, as I'm like moving more into the film and television space, it'd be super nice if people like would hire you because your work is good and your diversity, quote unquote, or your background or your inclusivity, all that kind of stuff. That's an asset rather than a box that they're trying to tick. I don't know. I don't know if you guys feel that way. Like if you've ever had that opportunity when you've been put in a room and suddenly you realize you're the one woman sitting at a table of like eight other men and you're like, Oh, okay. I'm supposed to speak for all women, the entire female gender, quote unquote, perceived gender. Like it's bullshit. I hate it.
2: I have had that experience. I'm a white woman, but I have a disability and uh, I tick that box for them and it makes them feel safe and it makes me very, very angry. I have a question about cultural appropriation in fantasy. Now that is a huge area and please answer it in terms of books or graphic novels or adaptations for the screen, wherever you go first. But because fantasy takes the fantastical and it can make things up, when it's done well, it's beautiful. When it's done badly, and I'm kind of referring to those dead white men or maybe not quite dead white men yet, sometimes it's just flat out cultural appropriation that should not be allowed. Can you talk to us about that? Because I feel we sometimes see it on the big screen a lot.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think a lot about the difference, I guess, between types of fantasy because urban fantasy, it's not a phrase that's used very often anymore because I think publishers realised that that as a genre wasn't selling well. So they were like, quick pivot to magical realism <laughs> or speculative fiction. I'm like, it's all the same thing, but you know, whatever, like whatever sells, baby. But urban fantasy is a fantasy that is set within a real world setting. So if you wanted to be super bored about Harry Potter is urban fantasy because it has fantastical elements, but real world London and Scotland is very much actively part of the universe. Same with things like Lovecraft Country, uh, the television series is a great example, but also Suki Stackhouse series. So True Blood, the show, you know, it's set in the deep South and the racism involved in that world ends up becoming part of the fantasy and part of the narrative device for the way supernatural creatures are handled, which is very interesting. And then you get into sword and sorcery, which is more of like your Lord of the Rings stuff. And then things that have maybe more of a sci-fi bit, your underworlds, et cetera. And I think depending on the type of fantasy genre that can make the cultural appropriation discussion trickier and harder. Because urban fantasy, I don't want to say it's easy, but because it is the real world and the real world isn't, you know, all white, straight, male, I feel like it's easier in a lot of ways. And this hasn't always been the case, right? But for people of diverse backgrounds and the diverse practices to be incorporated into the story, because that's how it is in the real world. And you see people out there in the real world every day who are from different backgrounds, different ages, different abilities, disabilities, even seeing something like the Volvani in Mad Max Fury Road, which is this troop of women who are in their 50s with like no teeth and they're just legends. And they're like, let's get them, girls. Like, something like that's a full on fantasy world, but they're taking something very grounded and truthful from the real world and putting it into Mad Max Fury Road. The cultural appropriation discussion, I think, is really tricky. It's like case by case, obviously. I don't want to like call out specific examples, but. From my point of view, I think you can feel it as an audience member. It's one of those things that it's a little bit of a difference between seeing it and feeling it, right? And it is about that idea of own voices, which is a discussion that I find really interesting because own voices is essentially like people from their own backgrounds telling their own stories, which I fundamentally agree with. But at the same time, I don't want to be stuck only being able to tell stories about a woman in her twenties and then in her thirties and then in know whatever. I want to be able to write a story where the main character is a man or the main character is somebody from a background that I'm not, but it's about how you go about that process. It's the consultation, it's the research, it's the conversations, it's the listening, it's the criticism, it's the taking all of those things on board. And I think a big part of that. For me, anyways, coming from a journalism background where it's not like you ever had to have one source, you had to have five. And you had to have, like, you know, okay, so you're getting three quoted in the piece, but you've got like another 10 on deep background. And I guess my instinct with all of that stuff, even when it's completely made up, like, okay, Wailing Woman, it's a story about banshees, right? So it's not as if I can, like, beep, pop, book, like, call up a banshee and be like, hey, sis, what's the deal with like being able to perceive and perceive death? How's that for you? But what I can do is go and look up manuscripts of the Irish Folklore Commission, right? But that character, Sadie Burke, the main character of The Wailing Woman, she's also a woman who communicates primarily through Auslan, which I do not. So how do you represent that? You go and you speak to people within that community. And The Witcher a Death, the main character, Casper, she's a woman with a limb difference. I do not have that. So how do I represent that? I speak to people with limb differences. I get them to read the book or episodes of the book or whatever. There's a a really incredible actress and a friend of mine, Angel Guy Fiera, who identifies as a bionic actress. And she's really been at the forefront of different types of limb difference representation and pop culture. And another friend of mine, Quentin Kinahan, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but he was a big disability activist as well as an actor and was very much always talking about how a thing is represented, regardless of necessarily the specifics, but sometimes more of the feel. And those stories are important. And I'm, I hear from people when they respond to characters that are like them, or maybe it's the first time they've seen a character in a wheelchair, or maybe it's the first time they've seen a Maori lead or an Asian lead or a woman in her 50s as a, a wombat shifter called Shazza in the series. And I get a lot of fan mail about Shazza. Shazza is like for sure a fan favorite. And just for women who are not 20 or 30 or teens, getting to see a character who has agency and a life and complexities and nuances in their 50s is really key to them. So I feel like conversations are really important. Conversations and dialogue and listening and consultation and criticism. And it's such a complicated subject. And I don't think there's like one straight up answer. It's just like, you have to be willing to do the work and it's not always going to come out perfectly and I feel like actually in most cases it doesn't but it's all about the intent as well you know
0: I think that's a beautiful answer I think honing in on what you're trying to tell us to me it's that yeah of course you can write a character with different ability or from a different background or a different gender to your own you've got to do it well if you do a good job If you do the work and talk to people with lived experience and do the research, as you say, and take time and practice and write the character and unwrite and rewrite and do the work to make sure it's authentic so that someone who shares that lived experience can read that on the page and go, yeah, that's believable. Then I don't think many people complain. Even like the
1: Rose Daughter, right? Because it has this mechanism where it's like a chapter in the past, a chapter in the present. I grew up in the forties. I didn't live through that. That's not my lived experience. So it's okay. How do I make this authentic and feel authentic and historically accurate? Obviously. Yes. It's a lot of reading census data and looking at fabrics, but it's also about talking to people from that time period. And like growing up in the forties in LA is different to growing up in the forties in freaking Edinburgh or whatever, making sure those specifics, like the specificity is key. I've always thought sometimes that the more specific a thing is, the more universal it can be. And it can really connect with people for that reason.
0: So I want to finish up by asking about specificity when you're writing in a world that doesn't exist and Mm -hmm. has never existed. So how do you ensure... I don't know if authenticity is the word, but authenticity, a three-dimensional nature to your characters. When you are talking about a witch or a banshee or a merman or whoever it might be, how do you ensure that it feels real when you're writing something that's never existed? Well, I cheat.
1: (laughs) No, I guess because it is all set partially in the real world, right? So I have the fantastical element, which is your werewolf, your witch, your ghost, your Banshee, your sprite, your shifter, you know, your pick pick a thing. Basically I have everything in my world except for, well, I have vampires, but they're not actively part of the world. They are like the feral cats of the universe and they just get kept in a cage and fed like rat bones and shit because I just needed to get them out of the way. Like if I had a good take on vampires, I'd fully be in there. It's kind of like zombies too. Every time there's a new zombie thing, I'm like, wow, that's inventive. Like, oh man, I would never have thought of that. Like I really didn't have anything to say about zombies. Same with vampires. I knew people would ask about it. So I'm like, yeah, they exist. Whatever. They're in a cage. Cool. Let's carry on, move on with the story. But a big part of what helps in my world and the cheating aspect of it, right. Is because it is Set within the real world Like that's part of it Is the supernatural creatures Move and navigate their way Through a world as we know it So you have something like The Witch you a Death Which is set in real world Berlin And real world Boss Castle in Cornwall If you don't know what that is Very tiny, very small town It's home to like One of the oldest and most extensive Witch museums in the world Obviously which was why It was key to the story But making those aspects feel real, like going to that place and researching that place and taking note of the cobblestones (laughs) and the footpaths and the the houses and how the place smells and how it sounds and how it feels and working those things into it. And even like in Who's Still Afraid, Tommy Grayson takes her little sister slash half sister to this burger joint, which is called Burgermeister, right? And if you've ever been to Berlin, it's like a bit of an institution. It's in like a converted, (laughs) sounds so horrible. It's in a converted public toilet. Like they converted an old public toilet into a burger. I have eaten a Burgermeister burger. You know, it's delicious. (laughs) It's like, it's such a Berlin thing. You have to do it. And okay, they are two werewolf women talking about a potential character being faced with death and like whether they'll choose death or immortality and like the pressures of this like supernatural hyperreal hyper real world, but they're doing it in a real world setting. But also I think the other thing that's key is that monsters have always been used as a vessel to talk about real world things. You know, going back to... Mary Shelley, God bless, who invented the science fiction genre and showed that anything men can do, teenage girls can do better and first. And that whole story was basically about men, (coughs) Lord Byron, being destroyed by their own creation, right? So it's a very like, there's a real through line there that can be examined. And in the case of the werewolves in my books, they are a vessel for talking about female rage and this idea of the feminine grotesque. And that is something that we don't get to explore very often. Oftentimes like lycanthropies used to talk about puberty and metamorphosis and that's great. But at the same time, let's talk about that othering. Like let's talk about that living life on the in-between and banshees. It was all like, what is it like to try and find your voice and learn how to use it? but also literally because you're a banshee and like your power is your voice. But I think there's, I think there's a really great, I always love those stories when it's using something fantastical to talk about something that really cuts through and really feels relatable to the real world. And that's at least what I attempt to do. Having real world settings as part of the fantastical is the cheating element, but also the fact that for so long, these monsters, these traditional monsters have been, usually white guys in their 40s who are like the curse or whatever and there's this beautiful untapped resource for what those kind of creatures say about women and women in their teens and women in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and I'm so lucky that this I mean like I work really bloody hard I should say that but at the same time like this game is partially luck too but I'm so lucky that I have eight books in the series. And so it wasn't just a book about a woman in her twenties. I got to explore a woman in her thirties. I got to explore gay characters, straight characters, women of different ethnicities, women of different socioeconomic backgrounds, women of different traumas. And I wouldn't have gotten to do and explore all of that in one book because it's like, how do you do that all in the one novel? But with eight and different monsters to help me do that as well is like, that's kind of almost a trick. It's like, Hey guys, come over here. I want to play with like some fun, fantastical monsters. Oopsies. We're talking about some real world shit too. Surprise, but you can still make it enjoyable, (laughs) you know?
0: Maria, thank you so much for being with us. You have been an absolute delight and I could never have imagined I would have enjoyed the fantasy episode this much.
1: Thank you for coming over to the dark side. Join us! Join us! Between me and Jess Townsend and Astrid's like slow but long game, I feel like we're gonna get you over here, babe. It's not gonna be too long till you'll be at a pop culture convention and cosplay. Like <laughs> building on it, we're building on it. <laughs>
0: all we've got time for with Maria Lewis. If you enjoyed this conversation, then please do check out The Rose Daughter, which is the most recent in her series of novels about the shared supernatural universe. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of Anonymous Was a Woman, then you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts in your ears from. I know we ask every week, but I'm hoping this time you'll listen. If you've got a moment to leave us a rating or a review, it would mean the world to us and it would also help other people who love books to find this podcast. Thanks so much.